one of the first questions that I got was, who would I say through our research are the most impressive CEOs? It was actually who was the most impressive CEO. Uh, and actually, we struggle with that question. We wrote an article, uh, got involved with an article for Fortune on what we considered from all of our research to be the 10 greatest CEOs of all time. And I just thought I'd tell you who they are and maybe just a little bit about them and what you learned from them. I'll do them in reverse order. Uh, somebody else might disagree with our list, but we used a criteria. We looked at performance during their tenure, uh, the impact that these executives had on, their, on the world around them. In other words, through the, either the products or what they did or uh, the way they managed, did they have an impact far outside the walls of their company? Uh, did they manage through resiliency, uh, through difficult times? Were they able to manage through a crisis and bring the company back or through a transformation? And finally, uh, did they have a legacy? Did, did, did the company continue to be strong after they left? And so, uh, we, using those criteria, we sorted down number 10 on the list would be uh, David Packard of the Hewlett Packard Company. And what's remarkable about David Packard and stood out to me as a, as a little story of, uh, of how he understood the importance of living to the values of the company. And if somebody at a division manager's review meeting said uh, uh, that their division had done well because they had changed some things in a government contract that had led to you know, increased profits for the quarter. And David Packard stopped the general manager's meeting and stood up. He was like six foot six. He'd played football in college. He had this sort of towering look. He worked in a mine outside of Pueblo when he was a youngster. And he looks down and he says, I would just like to remind everybody here that at the Hewlett Packard Company, uh, we make our profits by making a technical contribution that somehow improves the lives of our customers. Uh, we never do it by what we do in a contract. And I'm sure that uh, Mr. So-and-so simply forgot that, but I'm sure he'll remember it tomorrow morning when he visits me in my office at 8 a.m. <laughs> Number nine on the list uh, is uh, the woman I spoke about this morning in the session, Catherine Graham of the Washington Post. I think one of the, the great and inspiring leaders of our age in business. Number eight, William McKnight, who is the founding architect of the 3M company. And he, t he invented the idea of managing for innovation. And his idea was that if you created, he's kind of created the idea of an entrepreneurial economy inside his own company and basically said, we can systematically be lucky as a strategy. That was his original concept. Uh, number six, uh, on our number seven on the list is uh, what I think is the great turnaround artist of our age, David Maxwell uh, of, uh, of Fannie Mae. Uh, number six, and that was 1970, uh, 1981 to 86. Number six on the list is interesting because he's on the list for the wrong, for what most people would think is a different reason for why he's on the list. Uh, it's James Burke, who was the chief executive of Johnson & Johnson during the Tylenol crisis. And you probably remember an act of terrorism on the Tylenol customers, cyanide in the tablets, people were dying. And, and he was the CEO at the time that led J&J &J to spend over $100 million right off the bottom line to do the right thing and how to handle the crisis. And then you would think, well, that's why he's on the list. Actually, that's not why he's on the list. Now, he's on the list because he began reinforcing uh, the credo and the values in the credo, which basically say our first responsibility is to our customers, our second responsibility uh, is to our employees, our third responsibility is to our community, and our fourth, on a list of four of responsibilities, is to our shareholders. And if there's ever a trade-off between those, we go, you know, our customers, our people, our uh, uh, our communities than our shareholders. And that really played a role in how they handled the, the Tylenol crisis. But in, he went through a 
really disciplined process of reinforcing those values starting in 1979, three years before the crisis hit. And he had the whole organization prepared with the values such that when the crisis came, it was clear what they had to do. And had he not been CEO, J&J &J would have responded the same way. That was the genius. That was the genius, is preparing for crisis in the absence of crisis. Uh, number five was the fellow I spoke, spoke about this morning who sold the mills, Darwin Smith of Kimberly Clark. Uh, number four, George Merck of Merck and Company, who uh, put in place the first scientific research laboratories where science uh, roughly equaled what was going on in academic institutions. And it said on the cover of Time Magazine, medicine is for the patient, it is not for the profits, the profits follow. If we remember that, the profits have never failed to appear. Uh, number three on the list uh, is uh, uh, Sam Walton, and I think that uh, uh, there are many pros and cons to Sam Walton, but I don't, I don't think that the, you can really discount somebody who started with a single dime store. I mean, this is the amazing thing about Walmart. Single dime store in 1945. Sam Walton didn't have his second store until 1952. <laughs> Seven years to go from one dime store to two dime stores. I mean, talk about the flywheel, right? 25 years into their history, Walmart had only 38 stores. And that flywheel just kept building and building, and he started the, the building the momentum from there. And you, know, you kind of think about it, if you can just start with a dime store and build Walmart uh, and basically have a company that in 10 years is going to have a trillion dollars in revenues, uh, is going to have revenues that rival the GDP of England. Today, if Walmart, actually, if you just take the, uh, the, the pilferage, right, you know, the shoplifting, and set it aside as a company on its own, just how much they lose, it's a Fortune 500 company. This thing is huge. <laughs> So for, for, for good and ill, uh, I think Sam Walton has had a tremendous impact on, on the world and on the landscape, and it carried on beyond him. Number two is probably my personal favorite. And this is a fellow who turned down the job at first. He was saying he wasn't qualified. In fact, a number of our CEOs originally turned down the job saying they weren't qualified. Uh, he's one of four attorneys on the list. The most prevalent academic background of exceptional executives that we've studied is law. And there's a brutal fact. And uh, uh, he was one of the attorneys. And uh, his name was Bill Allen. And he became chief executive of the Boeing Aircraft Company in 1945 as the company lost over 90% of its revenues overnight at the end of the Second World War. I mean, you talk about cutbacks, right? Try losing 90% of your revenues overnight as the war comes to an end. You've got this massive system up in, uh, in, in Seattle. You've got all these people. He takes over the company, he'd been the corporate counsel, the previous CEO had died of a brain hemorrhage and all of a sudden he's in there as CEO. He not only saves the company, but they only made military bombers uh, at that time. And they didn't make a single commercial aircraft in 1945. In 1952, he convinced the board to bet uh, a, a, a huge portion of the company's net worth on a very far-sighted project called the Boeing, what became known as the Boeing 707 bet the company on the 707, threw everything into it, brought the world into the jet age. Then not only that, and this was when customers were saying, we don't want a commercial jet from Boeing, right? And, and Bill Allen said, no, if we're going to be a great company, we can't just make military bombers. We've got to make a shift to doing this commercial stuff. They leapfrogged McDonnell Douglas. Then he was the chief executive officer over the 707, the 727, the 737, and the 747. I mean, it's just an amazing record. And he was a man who, when he wrote out the night before, he, he was a widower and he had two kids, and he went home and he sat down with his kids after they pleaded with him to take the job again. He took out a yellow legal pad 
And he writes down on the legal pad all these things he's going to remind himself to do as CEO. And they had wonderful things on there like, don't be afraid to admit that you do not know. Ask more questions than you give answers. Make Boeing even greater uh, than it is. Recognize that it's all the people around you who will make this great. You're fortunate to be here. I mean, you know, and this is the thing he wrote before he did all this stuff. It's just a classic level five. You, uh, the actual document is a really wonderful archival document. And then, uh, the, but the, the fun thing about Bill Allen is that just a little vignette on him because it just captures that classic sort of level five stoic. I mean, he was he was described as severe and austere. I mean, he did was not a charismatic leader. When they when the, when they did the 707 and Tex Johnson does the maiden flight over Lake Washington, and here comes the 707 flying over Lake Washington, and Tex Johnson, the pilot, throws it into a full barrel roll in front of all the dignitaries. Bill Allen goes totally white, right? You know, here's the launch of the future, and he pulls a barrel roll. All Bill Allen says afterwards to Tex Johnson is, don't ever do that again, right? <laughs> uh, number one on my list is uh, one of the people I, I think I spoke about this morning, but is, is a actually relatively unknown executive. And his, I believe that he was to building modern organizations what Jefferson, Madison, uh, and uh, uh, Adams were to building the early stages of, of a nation. And this fellow named Charles Coffin, who was the founding chief executive, real, a real architectural chief executive of what became GE. And he became CEO of GE in 1892. And instead of inventing electricity like, or the electrical system like his predecessor, Thomas Edison, he invented something far more powerful. He put in place the world's first industrial research and development laboratory, and he invented the idea of systematic management development, both of which are the real reasons GE today is still a great company. And the way I think of it is he was the ultimate clock builder, right? A lot of CEOs are time tellers. I know what time it is. I'm the great time teller. I know where we should go. He was the ultimate clock builder, and he round up a clock that is still ticking well over 100 years later. They, they all played on the stage that he built. And I think the fact that his name has been obliterated by all of his illustrious successors is something that he would have been quite proud of. So that's the 10. Ask a simple question, get a longer answer than you wanted.